Thank you, choir. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Man, let me just say, a lot of our choir, you know, they head off to a, a grow group or to serve other places when they leave a service. That's why you see some of them leave. They don't just come and sing and then, you know, like scoot out of here. Uh, they have other places to serve or to be, uh, you know, in a small group. But for those of you that are here, well, I'm, I'm really glad we have the choir that we have. I mean, you guys are such a blessing to us and how you, uh, yeah, that's, that's good. And also uh, for Adam as well, been here not even three months already, and you are a blessing. Man, you and Marcia and your family, and uh, just grateful for what God is doing here. Luke chapter 1 is where we are going to be this morning as we start a new series. I'll share a little bit more about that here in just a second. Let me ask a question. How many of you have ever felt recently like you were overlooked or left out or just flat out forgotten? Let me see your hands real quickly, okay? All right. In life, obviously. All of us have gone through times then, you know, I mean, all of us could raise our hand if I asked if you've ever felt that way. I mean, we've all had the experience of being overlooked or forgotten. For me, I have kind of a little bit of a funny story in a sense of, uh, of how that happened. It goes back to high school. When I was in school, I mean, really as a kid, I, I have an older brother who played a lot of sports and he played basketball. And so from the time I was little, he's seven years older than me. So the time I was little, I just played basketball a lot, you know, and so all the way up through school, you know, middle school and high school, I played basketball and stuff, and, um, and so uh, there was one particular time where it was at the end of the school year is, is 10th grade, and at the end of my 10th grade year, see, the season was already over, but some of us guys were in the gym, we were just playing pickup, and so we're, you know, we're playing ball, and, uh, you know, I'm only five foot nine, so I don't get a whole lot of rebounds whenever I'd play ball, but this time, I guess I felt a little taller, so I go in for a rebound, and uh, when I went up, I didn't come down with the ball, but what I did come down with was an elbow and, uh, from a guy who's six foot four. And uh, so life lesson there, if you're 5'9", never go for a rebound against a guy who's six foot four. And so when I came down, I immediately knew something was wrong. So I walked off the court and I, w- I was holding my mouth because that's where the elbow hit me. And, uh, and so a buddy of mine came over who was playing. He said, man, you okay? And I, and I took my hand away and he went, oh. So that, that, that's not a good sign if that ever happens. If you're in the workplace, you get hit in the mouth or something, and people go, oh, that, you know, head, head to a mirror. So that's what I did. So I went to the, to the locker room. I went to the mirror, and, uh, and I, I looked, and I went, oh, <laughs> not really, <laughs> but I should have, because uh, one of my front teeth was barely hanging on, and the one next to it wasn't too far behind. And so I called my mom, and uh, I, said, uh, I said, mom, I almost got my teeth knocked out. I need you to come and pick me up from school. And so uh, my mom is in heaven now, uh, but she had a, uh, a real way of being late everywhere she went. And so uh, I'm sure she got to heaven on time, but every other time she was late. So, so I waited and I waited and I waited and I waited. I mean, my team, I just won't go into details because you're about to eat here soon, but uh, it was not good. And so she, she like took forever to get there. And so she finally came and then it was off after hours, oral surgeon, braces, the whole kind of nine yards and stuff. Everything worked out fine, but it was later. And I can't remember exactly when, but it was later. I thought, man, what on earth? Why did it take so long? So I asked my, my mom, I said, mom, why did it take you so long to get to the school when I called you? And she said, well, I thought, my mom couldn't hear either. She said, I thought you said that you almost got knocked out, not almost got your teeth knocked out. So then later it dawned on me, I thought, so what does it mean if I almost got knocked out? Does that mean you just take your time and buy some groceries and, you know, just finish this up real quick, you know? So that's no slam on my mom. My mom loved us, and we all knew that, you know, and just did a really good job of showing that. That's just kind of one humorous story to, to, to illustrate the fact that there are times in our lives where we just feel kind of overlooked. You know, we feel left out. We feel forgotten, you know. Maybe for you it happens in the workplace. You know, you work in the same job. You do the same thing you've done for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or whatever, or maybe even less than that. 
And yet you do your work, you do your work really well, and it seems as though nobody ever notices. You know, nobody ever takes a moment to just say, hey, that was a really good job. Hey, you really nailed that project. Hey, really appreciate what you do here. And you just feel sort of overlooked. Maybe for you, it's, it's a different set of circumstances. Maybe, maybe for you, you're a single parent. And as you raise your family, whether you're raising your family as a, as a father or as a mom, I mean, you're scratching and clawing. You didn't expect to be a single parent, but, uh, but you are, and, and you're working an extra job, and you're picking up an extra shift here and there, and, and you never get to do a lot of the things that you had envisioned you'd be doing at this stage in your life, and, and you just sort of feel left out. I mean, nobody ever recognizes. Nobody ever really seems to, to get it. They, they don't ever really stop to think that, you know what, this is a struggle, and I could use a hand here, and you feel overlooked. You feel somewhat left out you feel forgotten. Maybe you've gone through an illness. Maybe you've lost a loved one. And you know, for the first few weeks, I mean, it was busy. Your phone line was burning up and you were getting messages and emails and cards. But now it's been a few weeks. It's been a couple of months. It's been a six months or a year, a couple of years. And now after you've lost that loved one, you, know, you, you don't really ever get calls anymore. Nobody ever asks, hey, how are you doing? Nobody ever mentions them in conversation, and it's almost as though it's it's like a big X there, like we can't go there, we don't want to make them upset. And you feel left out, you feel overlooked, you feel forgotten, maybe you've moved to a new city, maybe this has been a tough year for you. You know, you you didn't think you'd be living here, all your friends and family are somewhere else, another city, another state. I mean, you, you have some friends, but you're not really real close to people like you were. You just feel overlooked. You know, this morning we start a brand new series entitled, I Believe. And in this series, what we're going to do is, for four weeks, all the way up through Christmas morning, we're going we're to take a look at different aspects of what we would call the Christmas story. And as we look at different aspects of the Christmas story, we're going to pull out, you know, obviously, the, the details we're familiar with, you know, the manger and the wise men and the star and the shepherds, a lot of those elements, you know, the facts that are there, they're all true, you know, the Bible gets them right. Uh, and yet, beyond that, what I want us to do in the series is to go a little bit deeper, kind of, kind of beneath the surface, maybe pull the curtain back and go backstage a little bit and, and look at some other elements of the Christmas story that maybe we don't always recognize so quickly and so easily. And so, through this series entitled, I Believe, what, what I want to do e- each week is to is to do that, kind of pull out a different element, something, something that maybe we've never noticed before. And even when our choir sang this morning, the very first song was titled Believe, you know, and so through the, these four weeks, we're going to look at that aspect of what it really means to believe and what it is that we believe in and what that belief really means to us, the difference that it should make in our lives. When you use that word believe, there are a lot of different connotations to it, aren't there? You know, believe means different things to different people. It has different shades of meaning. You know, for a lot of us, believe is just, it's like a wishful thinking. You know, we use that word believe, and it just means I, I, I'm hoping for, I have wishful thinking. Let me give an example. Uh, you may say, I believe that this year the Atlanta Falcons are going to win the Super Bowl, right? Yeah, yeah uh, and, and so that, that's your belief. You say, I believe this is the year we've been waiting for, right, forever. You know, this is the year the Falcons are going to win it all. They're going to win the Super Bowl. And what that means is it's wishful thinking. It's, it's I hope so. That's what you're saying. You're saying, I'm a Falcons fan. I've been a Falcons fan since, since uh, you know, way back when I was a kid. And, uh, and, and it's been some hard years, you know. But, uh, but you, know, you may say, I believe this is the year for us. And what you're saying is, I hope this is going to happen. I'm not a prophet. I don't see the future. I don't know what's going to come, you know, first week, first Sunday in February. I don't know if they're going to be in the Super Bowl or going to win, but, but I believe, right, I have wishful thinking that this is going to happen, right? And by the way, if they don't get a defense, they're not even going to the playoffs. So that's another, another set of conversation, I guess. So, but that's what you're saying. I believe. I believe this is going to happen. Sometimes when we use that word believe, it's referring not to wishful thinking, but to just like a personal preference, 
You know, believe means I just prefer this. Let me, let me prove this to you. How many of you would say, I believe that chocolate ice cream is the best ice cream flavor of all? Let me see your hands, all right? All right, some of you, all right? How many of you would say, no, I believe that strawberry ice cream is the best ice cream of all? Let me see your hands, all right? Some of you, first service, nobody wanted to raise their hand. They were just ashamed of strawberries, I guess. I don't know. So how many of you would say, no, I believe that vanilla ice cream is the best ice cream of all? All right, some very proud vanilla, plain, boring people. That's good. And then how many of you would say, I believe that coffee ice cream is the best ice cream of all? My wife being that number, all right? Now, now for you, for I, I just, I believe you're all wrong, really, because I personally believe, right, this is personal preference, meaning of belief, I believe that Bluebell candy jar ice cream is the absolute best ice cream on the planet. Now, I know there are some health concerns with Bluebell nowadays. It is worth it. If you find it, just buy it and eat it. It will be the... It will be the best hospitalization you have ever had, I'm telling you. It is, it is just really, really good stuff. And so, Bluebell candy jar, you'll thank me for it later. It's not like I'm running for office or something, but it is really good stuff. So, when we say believe, sometimes it means uh, it's wishful thinking. I'm hoping this is going to happen. Sometimes it means this is my preference. You know, you believe that, I believe this. You know, that's your preference. This is my preference. But really, at the core of the word believe, it refers to a response to what is true. It's a response to what we know has proven to be truth, and the response is such that it becomes a conviction that shapes our actions. That's what belief really is. It's a response to truth that is so significant that it shapes our actions as a result. Let me give you a little example. This has nothing to do with Christmas necessarily, but a passage of Scripture that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let me just kind of show how this played out for him. 2 Corinthians 4, let's bring that up, verse 13. Paul is writing here, and he says, "...having the same spirit of faith..." According to what is written, "...I believed, therefore I spoke." Paul says, "...we also believe..." Therefore, we also speak. In other words, Paul is saying we have a response to something that is true, that is so significant, it shapes our actions. It is a conviction that determines what we say as a result. Paul would say, I proclaim the message of the gospel. Why? Because it is my response to what I know is true, the message of Scripture, the message of the gospel. And when we truly believe something with all of our heart, not a preference, not just something that we hope for, that we're wishing for, but when it is really a response to what we know is true, it is so significant that we act differently, we behave differently, we think differently, we live differently as a result of it. I believe has implications for many, many areas of our lives. And when we look in Scripture, what we find is that the Bible tells us certain things about that first Christmas, all of them that are true, that have huge implications for our lives. So that if we really, really, really believe them, we're going to put a little bit of a different twist to the way we live our lives, to the way we think, and to the way that we treat others, and to the way that we deal with God. So the message this morning, the first in this series, is I believe that God sees the forgotten. I believe with all my heart, based on what I read, just in the story that deals with Christmas, that God sees the forgotten. In the biblical record, there are basically two books of the, of the Bible, two of the Gospels, that we would say kind of tell the Christmas story. 
Now, the Christmas story is woven all through Scripture. I mean, it's Old Testament, New Testament. There are places where even John in John chapter 1 talks about how um, uh, the Word came and dwelt among us. And that's a reference to the Incarnation. It's a reference to Christmas. Christmas. But really, there are two books of the Bible that most of us would say, those are like the Christmas books. You know, those are the passages that deal with the Christmas story. It's in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2. There are going to be a lot of similarities if you read those four chapters, Matthew 1 and 2, Luke 1 and 2. A lot of similarities, but then there are things that Matthew adds that Luke doesn't mention. And then there's going to be some stuff that Luke adds that Matthew doesn't mention. They don't contradict each other. They just give us more of a comprehensive, blended picture of what happened that first Christmas. And when we begin to study Scripture, what we see is is that the story of Christmas, again, is, is woven throughout that whole entire book, Old Testament through New Testament. Adam actually mentioned earlier during the praise and worship time, he talked about the 400 years of silence. In the Old Testament, uh, the Messiah, who, who would be Jesus, would be prophesied by countless prophets. But at the close of the Old Testament, there would be 400 years where there was no prophetic voice. We call those the 400 years of silence. It doesn't mean everybody ran around with their hands over their mouth and nobody could talk. You know, they didn't all become monks. You know, it just means that there was no prophet that spoke through those four centuries between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, you can imagine what it must have been like then whenever the birth of Christ would come and people would begin to, to put all the pieces together and to connect the dots. I mean, going all the way back again, even to the Old Testament with Isaiah, uh, uh, 700 years before Jesus, he would already have prophesied the Messiah would come. In fact, look on the screen and, uh, at what Isaiah would write in Isaiah chapter 7, a couple of places, but we're just going to look at chapter 7 this morning. He said 700 years roughly before Jesus would come, he said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign and behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And so the Jewish people knew that a Messiah was coming. The prophets had pointed to this. that They knew the day would come. And then as the events would unfold, those 400 years of silence would pass, Jesus would be born. And what we find is, is that as Luke captures it for us here, it would absolutely nail exactly what the prophets had said. When you open your uh, Bible to the book of Luke, what you find there is a historical document uh, that was put together by a guy named Luke who was a physician. Now, Luke tells us, I won't read these, you can look at it on your own sometime, in the first four verses of Luke chapter 1, we find that Luke tells us that he has set out to put together a letter or document that, that would, would piece together the story of Jesus. Yeah, it wouldn't cover every detail, but it would put together basically the story of Jesus in, a, in a, a, a consecutive order, a very systematic order. He would do research, he would investigate, that, that he would talk with witnesses. He says all that in the first four verses of Luke chapter 1. In fact, it, most would agree that probably there was a point where Luke, at least once if not more, would actually have conversation with Mary to fill in some of the details as well. If you read the book of Acts, you find that Luke would often be in some of the key Christian cities, all right, as, as the gospel was spreading. Luke was often found in different ones of those Christian cities. So he, through his ministry, was around a lot of key Christian leaders early on as the Christianity began to move. And so when he put together this book, when you couple all of his research and all of the work that he put into it, when you couple that with the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired him and, and showed him and guided him into what to write. I mean, you are holding in your lap right now, if you've got your Bible there, you are holding a precious, precious document that is completely accurate, totally true, has been proven through the centuries, that tells us Luke's perspective on the coming of Jesus. And it's from his perspective that I want us to look at this morning and to see, maybe in a creative way, a way that you've never thought of before, that God sees the forgotten. And so let's jump into Luke chapter 1. We're going to move down part of the way through that lengthy chapter, and let's begin in verse 26. The setting here is that Mary is about to learn that God has chosen her to give birth 
to the Messiah. So chapter 1 in the book of Luke, let's begin in verse 26. You can read with me on the overhead if you don't have your Bible. Luke writes and he says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin, all right, this is what Isaiah had already said 700 years before, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And so Luke tells us at the very beginning here that there would be a miracle performed. He mentions that the mother of Jesus that God would choose would be a Hebrew girl by the name of Mary. Now, most theologians would agree that Mary was probably under the age of 20 at this time. The Bible never tells us how old she was. She would have more children after this would take place. Uh, uh, Hebrew customs, typically when you were engaged, you were on the younger end of the spectrum. So kind of piecing all that together, most scholars would agree that she was under the age of 20. She was a teenager when all of these events began to occur. And so these first two verses here, verse 26 and verse 27, tells us that God would come. He would, he would send an angel to Mary to give her the message that she was going to be the mother. She, he had selected her. God had chosen her as an act of grace to give birth to the Messiah. Now, this would be significant because the prophets had said that she would be a virgin and she would conceive miraculously of God. And the reason that is important is because the child she would bear when Jesus would be born, because of the nature of the virgin birth, this is a key component to the Christian faith, was that he would be born of a woman, right? And so he would be a satisfactory substitute for us when he died in our place, but he would also be born of God. He would be born of God, meaning he would be sinless. He would be fully, fully God. He would be deity. And so he would be a satisfactory payment for our sin. He would be our substitute, but he would also be our sinless, satisfactory payment for our sin. So this is a key component here, the virgin birth of Christ. And Luke tells us, without, without uh, any hesitation, he tells us that this would be a fulfillment of Scripture, a fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. If you look at verse 28, notice what else he, he says as he begins to move. He says that as the angel Gabriel came in, he says, and coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now that phrase, favored one in the Greek, could also be translated, uh, the, uh, greetings, uh, one who is filled with grace. It is not pointing to the fact that Mary has done something to earn the right to give birth to the Messiah. There's nowhere in the Bible that, that shows us that, you know, Mary was like a super saint, you know, or, or she you know, did extra Bible study or something, and, and she had earned the right to give birth to the Messiah, right? She had jumped through all these hoops, and now she's the one chosen by God. Nothing in the Bible points to that. The Bible points to the fact, however, that it was by God's grace, for whatever reason he doesn't explain, it was by God's grace he chose her to be the one, this ordinary Hebrew girl, probably just like all the other Hebrew girls of her age, there was probably nothing that necessarily stood out about her, there was probably nothing that necessarily distanced her from everyone else, but by his grace God chose her. Could we possibly even say she would have been easily overlooked by anyone else? She would have easily been forgotten by anyone else, and yet God, by his grace, chose her to be the one who would give birth to the Messiah that the world had waited for for centuries. You can tell a little of that in her response in verse 29. Look at what it says in the next verse. She was very perplexed at this statement, and she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. When Mary heard the greeting from the, from the angel Gabriel, uh, and, and that she had been, as, a, as an act of God's grace, chosen by God, all she could, her only response was to be astounded. 
verse 30 through verse 33. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, which is a reference to his deity, by the way. And his kingdom will have no end. You know, through the years, depending on what type of a religious structure maybe you were raised in or accustomed to, there have been some things added to the story that we don't find in Scripture. Maybe in some you know, part religious group maybe you were a part of, maybe you heard Mary referred to as the mother of heaven. There's no reference to that title at all in Scripture. Maybe for you, you've, you've been taught or you've heard that Mary was sinless, that she had not committed any sin, never committed a sin. Nowhere in the Bible do we find that mentioned or find that even referenced at all. I mean, she was in need of a Savior just like the rest of us are. In fact, in some circles, they even go so far as to say that Mary is a co-redeemer, a co-redemptrix, that she as well is on par with Jesus as one who provides salvation to those who come. And nowhere in the Bible do we, see, do we see any reference to that whatsoever. In fact, whenever we look at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, where do we find Mary, his mother? She was there at the foot of the cross, and all she could do was weep. She didn't have the power to bring him down, to, to rescue him, to stop the events as they unfolded. All all she could do was weep. Why? Because she was an ordinary person in need of a Savior, just like the rest of us are. And yet the Bible tells us that for whatever reason, God, by His grace, chose to pinpoint her and to select her and to choose her to be the one who would give birth to the Messiah. It just doesn't, in a way, it doesn't seem to make sense. If I was the one in charge, and for you too, I'm sure, if you were the one in charge, say God said, hey, you got to pick somebody to be you know, the one who gives birth to the Messiah. I mean, we probably wouldn't pick somebody who was overlooked and just kind of forgotten and marginalized and pushed to the fringes, right? I mean, we would have been kind of like, this is our time to be president. We're going to pick our cabinet, you know, we're going to go find the people with the best resume, get all those ladies set out, we're going to find out just the right resume, who's accomplished the most, who's got the most power, who's got the most prestige, who's got the most influence, that's going to be the one who's going to give birth to the Messiah, but that's not the way God did this. God chose someone by his grace, and it fit the picture perfectly. It fit it perfectly because Jesus would be born into a family where his father was a carpenter, right? He wasn't born to a king where he was raised in a palace. No, when he left heaven, he came was born into an ordinary family where his mother was probably just an ordinary, overlooked, forgotten Hebrew girl in a lot of ways. Eight days into his existence on this earth, at least, he's pre-existent, he's eternal. But when he was born, eight days after his birth, his family goes to the temple and they offer a sacrifice, which was customary in Jewish circles in those times. They would offer a sacrifice and it was the kind of the lower rung of the sacrifice that would be acceptable, showing that they were probably a family that did not have much. They were not wealthy. Jesus, he came into this world and he experienced everything that we've experienced. He knows what it's like to have been tempted because he was tempted by Satan himself, Scripture tells us. He knows what it's like to be betrayed and hung out to dry by a close friend. He, he went there, right? He experienced that. He probably saw his father in the carpenter shop ripped off countless times by people who came and had work done and didn't pay his dad for what they did. He experienced all the things that this cruel, wicked, heart, uh, uh, broken world ha has to offer. And he, he walked through all of that. And the reason, many ways, that he did that was so that he could identify it with us and we could identify with him. And so the, the story fits. God would choose, by his grace, an ordinary Hebrew girl to give birth to the Messiah who would come as a Savior to the world. If all of this was a drama... 
<laughs> you know, we may be tempted to say, boy, Mary had a front row seat for this drama as it unfolded. She didn't have a front row seat. She was in the cast. I mean, she was on the stage. God had chosen her. A girl who probably was overlooked and forgotten by most. He chose her by his grace. Why? Because he saw her. So what's caused you to feel overlooked recently? Where are you in your life maybe that has caused you to feel as though no one else sees you, no one else understands, no one else gets what you, they just don't get it. They don't, they don't know what you deal with. They don't know what you're walking through. Where do you feel like you've been forgotten? And where in your life have you felt as though maybe even God himself has just sort of lost track of you? That you're almost in a kind of a wandering wasteland, and surely God doesn't hear my prayers anymore, or my life would be different. Surely God doesn't know what I face and what I go through, or my life would be different. Listen, that couldn't be further from the truth, because the whole reason Jesus came is to see you in your need, to see you in me in our brokenness, to see us in our helplessness. He came for us there, and he came. He left everything that was in heaven. He came for us in this fallen world, and he gave of himself so that we would see him, so that we would trust him, so that we would be saved by him, and so that he would keep us forever. You know, Mary Mary would have other children, she and Joseph. Jesus would have, I guess, what we would call half-brothers, right? Same mom, <laughs> kind of a different dad, right, since Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. You know, one of those half-brothers would be named James. James would, uh, early on in Jesus' life and ministry, James, would, James wouldn't necessarily agree with what Jesus would say when he claimed to be God. But there was a point in James's life where everything turned and everything changed, and more than likely it was the resurrection, when he saw Jesus crucified, and then when he saw Jesus risen from the dead. I mean, that'll change a person. And so there was a point there where the transition took place where James didn't see Jesus as just a half-brother, but he trusted him as his Savior. James would later become a leader in the early church in Jerusalem, and he would write a book of Scripture that you have there in your lap called the book of James towards the close of the New Testament. It's interesting because there's a, a, a verse in the book of James that really takes you back to Christmas almost, and it really reinforces this fact that God sees the forgotten, and he came just for them as well. Look at what it says in James chapter 1, verse 27. Again, this may seem disconnected, but just read what he writes. James says in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. I want you to keep that verse up there for just a second. Most theologians believe that Joseph probably passed away at some point early on in Jesus' ministry if not early on in his life. We read no more of Joseph in the New Testament, Joseph the, the father, so to speak, earthly sense of Jesus. We don't read any more of him after Jesus is 12 years old. There's no other reference made to Joseph in Scripture. In fact, when Jesus would die on the cross, what would happen? Some of you remember that one of his last statements that Jesus would make from the cross would be to look at his mother, Mary, and to say, as he, as he looked at John, one of his followers, he would, say, he would say, woman, behold your son, and son, behold your mother. It was one of the last things Jesus did from the cross was he took care of his earthly mother 
mother, Mary, and he makes sure that she'd be cared for after his death and ultimately after his ascension. In other words, there would seem to be reason to believe that Joseph was no more on the scene, that he had passed away by then. And so imagine as James right? The, the, one of the other sons of Mary, as he's pinning the words to this book of scripture, I wonder if James, when he got to what we call verse 27, if he just sort of set his pen down for a second, and if he just sort of stared off into, in, into space, because James maybe, maybe really understood what it felt like, in a sense, to, to kind of move through a single parent home. James probably understood, if Joseph was off the scene early on, James understood what it was like to see your mom struggle and to go through those times when you feel overlooked and forgotten and, com- and completely unrecognized. And I wonder that if that's not perhaps a reason that God chose James to put this in Scripture. That if, if you want to see what real, pure, undefiled religion looks like, you be absolutely certain, as I'm sure James thought about his mom, be certain that you visit and you take care of the orphans and the widows in their distress. What can James say? Man, I have been there and I've seen it happen. But James, whereas a lot of other people sometimes forget the left out, does God? And <laughs> I wonder if James wouldn't just have a big smile and say, oh no, God always sees the forgotten. You know, there would be a couple of implications to this. If we really, really believe, not wishful thinking, not personal preference, but if we really honestly believe God sees the forgotten, there are a couple of heavy implications that we need to keep in mind. One is this, that if we really believe God sees the forgotten, then we have every reason, if we're one of the forgotten, to have hope and joy because God sees us where we are and he came just for us. Hey, if that's you and you're struggling and you're hurting and no one seems to understand and no one seems to get it, God sees you and God has come for you. God wants to save you, and he's, if he's already saved you, he will keep you, and he will take care of you. That's where hope and joy can be found. But if we really believe that God sees the forgotten, then we as followers of Jesus must see the forgotten too. The ones that are near us, the ones that we work with, the ones that we cross paths with, Because how can we take advantage of the grace that God has given us when we had no hope in this world and then turn a blind eye to those who surround us that have been kicked to the curb? Because God sees the forgotten, hope and joy are always near, and the forgotten are my mission field. You know, when you look at the story of Mary, it is an amazing truth that God chose her to give birth to the Messiah. She had every reason not to be chosen, but by his grace he did. And in that simple story, beyond the star and the manger and the travel to Bethlehem and the wise men and the shepherds, beyond all those details, when we step behind the curtain, when we get beneath the surface, we see that what a great truth that even when no one else sees us in our time of need, there is a God in heaven who does. And he sent a Savior to rescue us. With heads bowed and eyes closed, With no one looking around, I want you to take inventory for just a second. Heads bowed, eyes closed. I want you to take inventory of the times in your life when you felt like one of those that was marginalized, overlooked, forgotten, pushed to the fringe. And I want you to ask yourself, how did God respond to me 
when I trusted him in those times? Did he provide? Did he lead me? Did he bail me out? Did he bless me? You know, if you have a relationship with him and you trusted him during those times, I can, I can almost guarantee you that either he has already done that or he's going to because he does not abandon those that are committed to him through Jesus. But maybe you're one of those that is in that place now where you feel left out, you feel overlooked, and you feel forgotten in the midst of your need and your hurt and your brokenness. But you've never trusted Christ. You've never even thought about the fact that, you know what, maybe the whole Christmas story is about me. Maybe beyond, beyond all those other details, maybe I'm a part of that. In fact, maybe I could almost kind of put myself in the middle of that nativity scene because he came for me. Maybe you've never considered that until today, but you know what? That's exactly what he did. He came to bring joy, and he came to bring peace, and he came to bring hope, and he came to bring salvation to those lost in sin. And if you've never made the simplest decision you'll ever make, understanding all this is true, if you've never made the decision to lay down your sin and to invite Jesus to step into your life and to forgive you and to take over, hey, he'll do that if you only ask him today. The best way that you know how, with all the hope, all, all, all the, the, the sincerity that you, that you have, if you'll only invite him in, he'll come in and, and he'll save you and he'll forgive you. And he'll never leave you. Will hard days come? Absolutely. Will you be treated unfairly by others? Absolutely. You live in a hard world. But he will never leave you or forsake you. And for those of you that have made that decision, maybe you've lost sight of that simple truth. And maybe today is a day where you can decide, you know what? I choose as an act of my will to really believe that he sees me where I am. God, whatever decisions we need to make this morning, Help us to make them and to follow where you lead us. God, there are some here today, their greatest need is a Savior. Jesus has already done the hard work. He's already come on our behalf. And maybe for some today, they just simply need to decide for themselves. Do they believe this enough to where they're willing to respond as an act of faith, confessing and admitting their sin to you, Lord Jesus, and then asking you to forgive it and take over their lives? Lord, I pray that as we make our decisions this morning, that we will, we will do them with a sincere heart, that we'll follow you the best we can. And Lord, in these next couple of moments, we understand that eternity could be reshaped by the decisions that are made today. And so give us wisdom and give us courage to follow where you lead. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's